if you have ever been hurt or wounded, you are in perfect position for God to use you. With that, open with me in the Bible to Genesis chapter 37. And we begin this morning looking at Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. Um, the truth is, is that we learn from Joseph that God can lift you from wherever you are. A.W. Tozer said that it's doubtful that God will ever use someone until he has wounded them deeply. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. People that are usable to God usually have been the very people that have been wounded in some way or another. Now, that's not what an awful lot of the world believes or thinks. Uh, much of the world believes that pain, bad, happiness, good. And, and there is some truth to that. I, I understand there are some pains that are um, indeed something that um, are, are terribly bad. They're inflicted upon people, but, and uh, there's an awful lot of happiness that is good. And God promises an awful lot of happiness and even more in Jesus Christ now and later. But ladies and gentlemen, while there's an awful lot of truth to pain, bad, happy, good, the truth is, is that God is over all in His Son, Jesus Christ. And he is thoroughly capable of overruling all and being the kind of God and acting in such a way that he ends up producing outrageous joy and benefit through the deepest of pains. If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever suffered, if you've ever been wounded, you are a candidate to being used powerfully by God. And we see that in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. And this morning, I want to look at the story, then I want to look at the significance of the story. Let's look first at the story in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. The first part of the story concerns itself with Joseph's dad, his dad, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 37. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers brother saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. This is Joseph's dad. Now Joseph in this story begins off as a 17-year-old high school junior. He's 17 years old. He's looking forward to his senior year in school. He is 17 years old. How old is he? He is 17 years old, and there are uh, some things in the story that immediately move it all over the cliff and down to a disaster. One is Joseph is known for giving bad, evil reports about his brothers. Now, their father is pretty uptight because of Genesis chapter 37 and the massive slaughter his sons performed upon the men in Shechem. And so he has set Joseph out there to watch over them and to bring him report about their behavior because he's got to survive in this ancient barbaric world. And by the way, don't think we're any more sophisticated today. We're still very barbaric. We just have bigger tools to inflict barbarism upon other people. 
But that's what's taking place here in the story. He sends Joseph to be a watchdog, and Joseph, instead of bringing back accurate reports, brings back bad reports, evil reports. There's a kernel of truth in it, but then it's exaggerated. And he makes his brothers look worse than what they really are. And his brothers are aware of it because they're busted for it. Well, that's one uh, awful thing about this. And then uh, Jacob, uh, also called Israel, loves Joseph more than all the other brothers, more than the other 11. He loves them more. Uh, The text says it's because he's the son of his old age. Uh, And when Jacob gets a little older, what he wants to do is that the man wants a little peace. And Joseph is easier to get along with than the other brothers. And you know, that happens in families, doesn't it? Uh, There can be children that are difficult and challenging. They're independent-minded. And and that starts with them after birth at about 10 minutes old. I mean, some of them are just so independent-minded, they don't conform. Now, let me encourage you. If you've got a strong-willed child, uh, that can be a good thing. Because if they get set on the right direction, no one is ever talking them out of it. you just got to get them set on the right direction. Joseph is not that way. Joseph, as becomes apparent later, is very compliant. He's very respectful. And so he's just easier to get along with. And his dad enjoys time with him more than he does the other brothers. And that's oftentimes what happens in families. And parents have really got to guard themselves um, uh, about that. And so that's another uh, item here that is uh, somewhat difficult. The the third thing that uh, takes place here is that Joseph, uh, Jacob, ends up giving Joseph a special set of clothes. He gives him a tunic. The text says it's a coat of many colors. It was probably elaborately decorated. But there's something about this particular tunic that is uh, mentioned with one of David's daughters in um, the uh, book of uh, 2 Samuel. Uh, Tamar wore something similar, and it was a royal robe that a princess would wear. And there were robes like that that princes would wear as well. Not just princesses, female, but princes, male. And that's what he's dressed Joseph in. While his brothers are out there in the field watching over the flocks, Joseph gets out there in his good clothes because his daddy wants him there in his good clothes. And therefore, he cannot work manual ranch labor like the other brothers. He's in his good clothes. Reminds me of a friend I had in college, uh, Bill Stroud, Uh, he uh, went to school and lived on campus, but his parents lived about 20 minutes away, and sometimes we would go out to his home. And about as soon as we got out there, his daddy tried to put us to work. Uh, We were cheap labor. And uh, so he tried to put us to work. Well, one of his friends wised up before the rest of us, and Doug would go out to Bill's house, and he'd be dressed in his nice clothes and put a tie on. And he would say something about, you know, I think I might have an emergency meeting this afternoon. I can't do anything, Mr. Stroud. Well, when you're in good clothes, you can't do that kind of manual labor. And that's what Jacob has intentionally set up amongst his boys. All these other boys, older than Joseph, end up working in the fields. And it looks like the younger brother, 17 years old, high school junior, is supervising them all and watching their every move. That's what's taking place here in the text. That is Joseph's dad. Now, the text says... In verse number 4 at the end, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They were so inflamed and aggravated with Joseph because of his elevation by his father that they never said a kind word to him. Every word was sharp. 
every word would snap, every word would cut, and that's what took place between he and his brothers. The same happens in families and in marriages today. And this is what is taking place because of the decisions of Joseph's dad. In fact, it says in verse 4, they hated him, and it will say that two more times in the text. Is what takes place. Let me say that whenever you're speaking on marriages and families, um, the truth is, is that the vast majority of people that have ever experienced any degree of family have got a little guilt about what they've dealt with. And that's not my intention today, to heap a bunch of guilt on you. But I want to say, if you've blown it with your family, if you need to make things right, there's hope for you. Jesus Christ, as awful as maybe your behavior has been in your family, towards your husband or towards your wife, towards your children or towards your parents. Jesus Christ bled for it all, rose again from the dead that you might be forgiven. And these are not small things. These are things that God took note of. And there is forgiveness and there is grace from God with every person that's blown it with their marriage or with their family. So that's Joseph's dad. But then I want you to look in verses 5 through 11 at Joseph's dream. Now he's got two dreams here. And throughout the story of Joseph, there are a series of dreams, and they always come in twos. And this confirms, indeed, that God is in the dream. It comes twice. There's confirmation, and that's one of the ways you can tell God's will. Now, beginning in verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I've dreamed. There were, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. So he has a harvest dream, and he depicts uh, their relationship with him in the future by a harvest dream. And this is the dream that God had given him. Then verse number 8, his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? Well, yeah, he's got the tunic. Uh, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed, it gets worse. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And, and this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11, and 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And if you read the chapter 50, the answer is yes. This is a dream. These two dreams, this harvest dream and this celestial dream, are from God. This is a very vivid, almost apocalyptic image of what's going to take place in the future of Israel's history and Egypt's history with Joseph. Now, isn't it interesting, if you know the rest of the story, that he does have a harvest dream. He's got a harvest dream because there's going to be a famine in the harvest, and Israel will need to go to Egypt to benefit from their harvest, which they, they've been storing up. And, and, and it's not surprising at all that some of it is celestial because, because the Pharaoh in Egypt believes himself to be the sun god, elevated, and even he is going to bow to Joseph's plan and his vision is what will take place. Joseph ends up ruling the whole land, and you can read that from here in chapter 37 to chapter 50, and we'll cover that 
in time to come. So this is, these are Joseph's dreams. They're from God, and everybody's ticked with him because he's got a vision for the future. That's what you've got here in the text. So there's Joseph's dreams, and then there's Joseph's dad. But there's a third thing, and that is Joseph's demise. Joseph's demise. Verses 12 through 36. Now let me tell you the story here. The brothers are aggravated. They've hated him, and he comes walking towards them to check up on them, and they know they're being held accountable by the 17-year-old who's a junior in high school, who is elevated, who is favored, who's spoiled, who's the brat of the family, and has done them wrong by giving exaggerated reports to their dad. And they start saying to each other, hey, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. Now that is how bad the thinking and the heart and the soul of these brothers has gotten. Most of the violence in America, by the way, is domestic violence. Let me say, you don't ever have to put up with that and you shouldn't. If something's going on, tell somebody. But that's what takes place here in the text. There is this kind of violence that takes place in this family. And they intend to kill Joseph. But Reuben says, hold on just a minute. Let's not do that. Let's put him in a pit. And uh, that's what they do. They throw him in there. And the text says, in just a moment, that they are so calloused that after throwing him in a pit and they hear his cries and sobs and moans, they sit down and they eat. This is how far they have fallen from God. That can happen in families. That can happen in marriages. And that's what they do. Well, Reuben's plan is to come get him and bring him back to his father. But apparently he turns his head or goes off to look after the flocks. And in the meantime, some Ishmaelites who are descendants of Abraham come by. There's a specific tribe of them called the Midianites that are traveling by. They're nomads. They're headed to Egypt. And they meet up with Joseph's brothers, minus Reuben, and they end up selling Joseph to the Midianites who are a small group of Ishmaelites is what takes place in the text. And I want you to look at the result at the very end of chapter 37. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. They sold him to the head of the secret service that watched over and protected Pharaoh. Joseph starts favored by his father and he ends up in a pit, and then he ends up in slavery, but not any kind of slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. He ends up in Egypt where the story will unfold. One thing will lead to another, and eventually he will save Israel from famine and from starvation, and he will set the stage for the great liberator of the Old Testament, Moses, which will set the stage for the great nation of Israel which will set the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ. What you have just read here at the end of chapter 37 is one of the most overlooked but momentous events in the entire Old Testament. It is an awful thing. It's pun it is um, uh, to be punished by capital punishment, and that is selling someone into slavery. And nevertheless, God uses it. Listen to me, sweet people. If you've ever been wounded, you're in the perfect position to be used by God. That's what happened with Joseph. Now, I want to talk about the significance for just a moment. And that, that, is, uh, that is this. First, God's design for family, love it. God's design for family is something we've got to love. 
Jacob does not have an appropriate design to his family. He's got two wives and two concubines is what he has. Now, you probably have not done an awful lot of uh, research and study into polygamous families, but it is a political war in a family like that whenever there are multiple wives and children. One great scholar that I've read is Lyman Santa, who just recently passed away. He was professor of missions at Yale, and he grew up in a polygamous Muslim family uh, in Ghana. He came to Jesus Christ later uh, through the witness of a powerful missionary and uh, followed the Lord and really made a difference in our understanding of world missions. But he talks in his biography about what it was like to grow up in a polygamous family. And there's a dance that the children have to do with one another because the moms are constantly in competition with each other. Well, in the ancient world, that was ordinary and that was normal. In other words, what you find Jacob doing is not what Isaac did, not even uh, to, to the extent that Abraham did. You find them doing marriage and family just like the customs of the world instead of by God's design. Adam and Eve were not polygamous. Noah and his wife were not polygamous. Isaac certainly wasn't. Technically, Abraham was not, but Jacob was. And it throws the whole family into chaos when they reject the design of God. Listen, the very best way to nurture marriages and families is to embrace the design of God. And when Christians and churches elevate that, we're not condemning people who don't fit into that. Folks, we love them and we want them to experience the maximum joy that God has for marriages and for families. And we just simply can't be silent about it. So, so don't think less of us. Don't be judgmental about us because we certain aren't, certainly aren't about you. But the best way to nurture marriages and nurture children is to embrace God's design for the family. Now, having said that, if you do not have that kind of family that Adam and Eve had, that Noah and his wife had, that Isaac and his wife had, I want to say there is hope for you. Don't despair. If you've ever been wounded, if you've ever sinned, you are a perfect candidate to be used by God. Just look at Jacob and his family. It is through this family the Messiah comes, Joseph comes and ends up saving Israel. No matter what kind of chaos and heartache and heartbreak that your marriage and family have experienced, the truth is God can overrule it all and still give your family a future and a Joseph. It can happen. But there's a second thing. Not only God's design for the family, but I, I want you to give some attention to God's direction for us. God's design for the family, love it. God's direction for us, know it. In other words, I would say to you, the most important Christian discipline is discerning and doing the will of God. Figuring out what God wants you to do and then doing it with all your might and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more important than that. And the spiritual disciplines are necessary and fellowship with the church is necessary. And you really begin that whole process by submitting to God. Mastering the Christian uh, discernment of the will of God. George Truitt, in fact, said that success is knowing and doing the will of God. That's success. And I think he's right, uh, entirely right. So God's direction for us, no, you say, well, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do with the future. A couple of things. One, 
Usually God directs us one step at a time. He doesn't show us the end of the journey at the beginning of the journey, or you might run from it because <laughs> you don't know what the future holds. You don't. He, he, in other words, guides you to his will and through life much the same way you walk through a forest at night with a flashlight. The flashlight doesn't show you all the way through the forest. It shows you just enough to take the next step or two. And that's what you have to uh, adopt and embrace when knowing and doing the will of God. Oftentimes, God doesn't show you the end at the beginning. In fact, I don't think he ever does. You have to go one or two steps at a time, and that's about all you get. So if you don't know what God wants you to do, just do what you already know to do. And that's the second thing. You've got to know, you've got to know and do what you already know to do to get more. In other words, God doesn't speak to frivolous people. He doesn't direct frivolous people. If you know that you are to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ today, do it and do it now, and then you get more. If you know that you're to reconcile with someone, do it and do it now. If you're to change your mind about something, and have you ever noticed how much of life is spent changing your mind? Yeah, I don't ever change mine, but the rest of you, I know. I'm kidding. I, change, I have to change my mind all the time. But that is a big part of living in life. And so do what you already know to do and be willing for God to direct you a step or two at a time and maybe not show you the end at the beginning. So here, here, but here's the thing I want to point out about the text. God gave Joseph a vision and no one believed it but Joseph. You need to know, you need to know when God puts something on your heart, but you've also got to know when God puts something on someone else's heart as well. And do you know where that came from? That came from a 17-year-old high school junior, and God was moving in him, and his family didn't listen. They erupted and they hated him for the dream and the vision God had given him. That can happen in marriages. The wife suggests something and the husband resents it. Or the husband suggests something and the wife resents it. Or the 17-year-old high school junior suggests something and the family resents it. The pastor, staff, committee suggests something. You've got to be able to tell not only when God has placed something on your heart, you've got to be able to discern when God has placed something on someone else's heart as well. Or you may completely miss the plan of God and maybe end up being a hindrance to it. You've got to be very, very careful and very sensitive to the ways of God. And, and truth is, when God wants to do something in your family, when God wants to do something in your place of work or your community, when God wants to do something in the church, He may not start with you. He may start with a 17-year-old high school junior is what he may do. But I want you to notice a third thing, and that is God's defeat of others. God's defeat of others embrace it. Not that God gets defeated, but God defeats other people embrace it. Joseph has a serious demise. He goes from being royalty to a pit to being a slave in Egypt. That's what he experiences. You've got to embrace defeats. 
You've got to embrace defeats and see the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. So God's defeat of others embrace it. Let me say, it is not likely that your life from this point on is going to get any easier. I hope I didn't discourage you. <laughs> but it's probably not going to get any easier. Okay? Um, God has not promised that it would. So you're going to have to learn how to be realistic and truthful about defeat and setbacks. You're going to have some. There are going to be troubles. There are going to be troubles in following God's will. Um, you know, when you come to Jesus Christ, that's the end of your troubles. But it's not the front end. It's, it's not the back end. It's the front end of a lot of your troubles. Jesus said in John 16, he said, he was very realistic and very honest, very transparent about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to come to him and embrace him. He said, in this world you have many tribulations. In this world you will have trouble. He, he didn't hide it. And, and I need to say to you, when you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is not the end of your trouble. He might be the front end, the beginning of an awful lot of difficulty and challenges. And we can't hide that. There might be some people that will look at you strange. They may say some ugly things to you. Just thank God you're not in North Korea where they slice your throat. Okay? You've got to develop a way, an attitude, an approach to dealing with defeats and dealing with trouble based upon this text and many, many others. But what I want you to note is that whenever Joseph found himself in the pit, when he found himself in slavery in Egypt, he was in the perfect position to save his family. Because that's what happens in the rest of the story. God was not ruining him. God was using him. God had not discarded him. God had positioned him to do a work of salvation in Israel's life. The meanness of Joseph's brothers put Joseph in a position to save them. That's not what they were expecting. That's not what they were expecting. So when others are aggravating, God is usually orchestrating in your life. God is arranging things to use you powerfully to make something happen in relationship to His will in the lives of others, in this case, eventually 70 different people. Psalm 76.10, David said, Even the wrath of man shall praise you. And then Paul said in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me by being placed in prison has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And then we're fond of quoting Romans 8.28, which is very wise to do. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So God is always arranging. When others are aggravating, God is arranging and orchestrating life to shape you into the image and the service of Jesus Christ. Christ. He's promised to do it and he does not fail. So let me make this point. Whenever you suffer defeat, do not become bitter. 
get curious. When you suffer defeat, do not grow bitter, get curious. Here's what you do. You go through a defeat, you suffer some, you sit back and step back, get a few people to pray for you, immerse yourself in the Word, talk to someone that might be wiser, a little more experienced than you with these things, and you start asking yourself the question, God, if you are who you say you are, and I'm aggravated, then you must be orchestrating something. God, what is your goal with this? Now, I'm going to wait on you to show me. And it may unfold over time. You've got to have a faith in God that is that intense, that real, because you're going to get wounded and you will suffer defeat. So when others are aggravated, when others are frustrating, God is often arranging and God is often orchestrating. Do not grow bitter, but get curious. Joseph had to do that. In fact, chapter 50, verse 20 That's what he will state to his brothers. He will state the Old Testament's version of Romans 8.28 in Genesis 50 in verse 20. And listen to what he ends up saying. As for you, you meant it, your hatred in selling me into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And that's what the Lord did with Joseph's pit and his introduction and languishing in slavery. His brothers meant it for evil. You know, that happened to Jesus. There are a lot of commentators that compare Joseph to Jesus. Just as Joseph was rejected by his brothers, so Jesus was rejected. John 1, 11 says, to as many as, verse 11 says, he came into his own and his own received him not. And so he came to Israel, they rejected him. Verse 12 says, But to as many as received him, gave him the authority to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. Hey, don't join that crowd that rejected Jesus this morning. Don't be part of that. Embrace Jesus with a full open heart, trusting he will cancel your guilt before God. And he'll take care of your bitterness, your purpose in life, your place in eternity. He'll take care of that. He's perfectly ready to do that and perfectly capable. He's done it a billion times or more. But don't be part of that crowd that when he comes, that they rejected him. He came into his own and received him not. He's coming to you today through this word, through worship, through your conscience, through circumstances and events. Don't be part of that crowd that says no to him. Instead, do verse 12. As many as received him, welcomed him, embraced him, enthusiastically gripped him and clutched him. To as many as received him, gave he the authority, the royal authority, to become the children of God, even those who believe on his name. Fling open your heart and say yes to him. Now, it might require that you have to change your mind. Now, most days, I'm just a big lovable fuzzball. And you're going to find this hard to believe, but once in a while I get grumpy. Thank you. That was a child of mine who said that. What? Never. It was sarcastic, but I'll take it. But I can get that way. And you know what I have to do? I have to stop being so self-righteous that I think everyone else is wrong with what they're doing. And I've got to acknowledge I'm grumpy 
and I'm being a pain. I really am. And I need to go apologize to my family or apologize to my wife. Um, my earliest memory of doing that with my family is when Hannah Grace was about four years old. And I corrected her and disciplined her, and I was wrong. It was Jonathan's fault. <laughs> it really was. And she hadn't forgot it. And uh, I went in and I told her, Hannah Grace, I am so sorry. I got this wrong. And you know what she did? She got a big beaming smile on her face through her tears. And she said, Daddy, you are the best daddy in the world. Well, I wasn't feeling like it before I confessed my error to her. But I sure did feel like it afterwards. And folks, that was 20 years ago, and I still haven't got over it. Do you know if you come to Jesus Christ today and you say, I'm changing my mind, I'm going to quit being self-righteous, I'm going to quit thinking I don't need Jesus, that I'm good enough. If you'll come to him, say, Lord, I've got it wrong. He's going to welcome you. So receive him, but receive him with the promise he's going to receive you as well. You open up your heart and life to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Christ. Thank you that you've done a marvelous work in Joseph. In fact, Lord, we're still living with it today.